Welcome to Season 1 of The Winemaker's Journey, a podcast about how a winemaker develops their personal approach to creating wines. I am your host, Daniel Barron, and over my 50-year career as a vineyard worker, vineyard manager, winemaker, and consultant, I have become increasingly conscious of the importance of mentorship in the development of a winemaker. On this podcast, we will explore the stories of my colleagues along this path. What were their influences and inspirations, and how did they take what they learned from their mentors to create their personal winemaking aesthetic? We will also talk with the innovators who are applying this inherited knowledge in new and exciting ways to add more precision to our efforts. And I'll add a few stories about my own career. Thank you for joining me on The Winemaker's Journey. The Winemaker's Journey is sponsored by Complain Wine, a partnership between my son Sam Barron and myself. Our mission is to make artisanal, moderate alcohol, single vineyard wines with vibrancy and finesse. Visit us at complainwine.com, C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T, wine.com, and by nakedwines.com, a passionate community of the world's best winemakers and wine drinkers, changing the way great wine is made. I'm proud to be among those winemakers. Look for the release of the 2019 Francophone Cabernet Sauvignon in 2021. And now for episode one of the winemaker's journey. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome my friend and colleague, Rob Davis. Rob worked in Dr. Ann Noble's lab at UC Davis, and shortly after graduation with a degree in fermentation science, went to work at Jordan Winery in Alexander Valley for their inaugural 1976 vintage. He had the good fortune to work with the legendary consultant Andrei Chelichev until Andrei's retirement in 1992. Rob spent 43 vintages as the winemaker at Jordan Winery, establishing the house style of balanced, moderate alcohol wines. He spent the last decade of his tenure upgrading the vineyard sourcing for all of the Jordan wines. Let's get started with our chat with Rob Davis. I, when we first met, you were in Ann Noble's lab, as I recall. Correct. Yeah, I ended up becoming uh, an assistant for her. And... Um Anne was fairly new to the sensor evaluation. She, you know, Rose Painborg was her idol. And this is, I think, what was really key. What we learned, what I learned through the sensor evaluation program that Anne put together was that she really turned the whole industry around, but certainly how research was done in applying her sensor evaluation science to how we evaluate wines. And I got to be part of the embryonic uh, part of this, of her uh, first few years at Davis. And it was just phenomenal because we got to be very good friends, very close. And, and now with the research they're doing now in terms of tasting wines is, is, is really, really cool. Uh, we think of Anne as the, you know, as the aroma wheel, but there's a lot more that she did. So that was, that was my introduction to, uh, I think, the higher art forms of, of uh, the enology program at Davis. Uh, th- through Anne, she was so amazing with the students, but also with a lot of the professors. So uh, her office is right next to Dr. Jim Guyman, who I think was the best palate I've ever met, and uh, even with the cigars. And then, uh, uh, you know, and then Ralph Kunke, and then Vern Singleton, and uh, Denny Webb. And all these, what I thought was really key for me as a student was the, the accessibility of all the professors. You know, they weren't 
they were your friends. You can go into their offices and they put their feet up and they talk about the sciences you were learning, but also about life. And uh, it was the relationships that I maintain. Um, Roger Bolton, we're still friends. I mean, very close friends to this day. And in fact, he just retired this last year too, but just great minds, but also the accessibility that you had in, in uh, sharing their, their wisdoms of, of uh, enology. And, you know, one of the things and one of the themes of this podcast is how their lives reached back. And so in a sense, you know, you know, and I think about Ameren, uh, were you in that last I was. Sensory, sensory analysis? So, so we were in that class together. Yes. I mean, Ameren was, was, he was a God. He, he was an expert taster in the 1933 Golden Gate Exposition on Treasure Island. I mean, you, you got to have that, those influences carried forward. I mean, just that, that who thinks of Anne, you know, people think of Anne about the aroma reel, but to carry on Pangborn's work and to apply it to wine, it was really taking, you know, because Ameren's sensory analysis was was not very analytical. It was very spotty. And, yeah. and, and in fact, so much of the research that the professors had done to that point were so heavily flawed. And a, a credit to them to allow Anne to come in and, and basically say, we need to reinvent this because this is this is statistically, there's so many levels that were wrong with the research that basically it's like having a water meter that never really read the water very well. Now, and I mean, there, but I think that a lot of the students didn't really appreciate the backgrounds that these professors had. I mean, Denny Webb with his partner invented the gas chromatograph. I mean, and, and we take it for granted now, but back then it was a very new thing, but he, he had the mind to put this thing together and invented. And, uh, and I think too, is that we were, both you and I, Dan, were kind of near the end of the careers of so many of the professors there. Yeah, it was kind of the end of that golden age. And that the history that they had, they were they were given the uh, they were required to clean up the, the microbial nature, uh, just to say one. But the whole methodology of winemaking at the time was so antique. Mm. And they and you could I mean, these wines just had so many flaws in it. I remember even then in, in 1976, where I, I was, I was the the wine uh, sommelier for this progressive dinner party. We go from t throughout Davis on our bicycles, and in each course, you know, uh, uh, one of us was supposed to come up with it. And I said, "Oh, I'll come up with the wine." And I said, "Who wants wine?" And everybody put their hand up. And then I went to open the bottle, and the thing exploded in my face <laughs> because it was going through malactic the bottle, and we. We take for granted some of the, I mean, God, the, 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 the difference between the old winery uh, at Wixon Hall and the one they have now. that Unbelievable. It's just, it's can't even compare the two. Yeah. Uh, so it was fun to see a part of that. Uh, and this, I think a lot of my experiences and, and anecdotes that I could share with my friends and what I've learned there at those four years at Davis, uh, were comparable to the ones I learned with Andre, you know, because mm. he come in, in 1938 uh, to be the winemaker of Beaulieu Vineyard, and he just was terrified at the lack of sanitation. You mentioned Amarine, but after a couple of years of, of just working his butt off uh, at Beaulieu, trying to clean up the problems, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. I want to go back to Europe. And, and uh, Dr. Amarine said, no, no, no. He says, you'll set the industry back 10 years if you leave. Wow. Um, 
So, uh, uh, and he's, you know, he stayed, and of course, you know, his legacy is what it is today, but those were, the, you were all, the youth, the advantage of youth is you don't have the experience to cloud your... Um, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, <laughs> but also you're so pie-eyed, you look, everything is amazing, and um, I remember, <laughs> I remember the pH meters today are so superior, but I remember working, we just had no money, and to get a... A new pH probe. I Are you talking, talking about the early years at Jordan or at Davis? Well, no. The, well, the, we definitely I had money at Jordan, but not at Davis. And so I was doing must analysis. I said, Ann, I somewhere between 3.3 and 3.75. <laughs> and she, she goes, just take the one in the middle. <laughs> and I said, but we need a new probe. She says, we can't afford it. Those are $35. We can't afford it. There was just no money there. And uh, to be able to do what we did was on, on the coattails of... <clears throat> Whoever was giving grants was great, but uh, it was such a different time then. Mm. So how did you get recruited? What was the process that you ended up moving to Jordan? Well, I, I realized that as a, even as a student, virtually all the professors had no, uh, I would say practical experience, but never worked in a winery. Never worked Other than Hodberg. Yeah, exactly. And that and, and you and that was a difference too because he had that background that could relate to in terms of we're all moving on to a real job, so to speak. I mean not that professors are not a real job, but you know, we're required to produce wine and, and make sure it succeeds. And um uh, the, the wines we made it uh at you know, as students at Davis, I mean <laughs> they were I remembered I remember um Denny Webb, who never had anything bad to say about wine, and we're going through, and we could just tell the flaws of the wines that we made. And he's smelling this one. It was, it had, it was reduced, it was oxidized, it had VA, it was just clearly a flawed wine. And he, I looked at him, he goes, Well, how do you describe this? And he goes, It pours well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's, it's a, we've come a long, long way since those days, uh, but it was fun to be a part of it. So, so I was. Upon graduating from Davis, and I didn't have a job, and uh, I actually was going to go, I'd already lined up to do master's work, and, and Ann and already was, I was going to work in Ann's lab doing research for her, which I already was doing that summer. And um, the, the true story is, which is, isn't always get out, how I got this job was, again, my life is all about serendipity, just being at the right place at the right time. And uh, I, this gentleman from uh, Jordan Winery showed up, and in my in Ann's lab and said, "Hey, we're looking for somebody to just the harvest intern." And Ann says, "Well, this is your guy. He'd be great." So I didn't hear back from him. And then I got this phone call like at eleven at night on a Saturday in our little local uh, brew uh, um, home brewing uh, group was was all partying, having tacos and and their home brews, and it was fun. Well, this guy calls up. And he's a very quiet talker, and he basically tells me I got an interview on Monday morning. And I, I said, yeah, sure, no problem at all, and hung up the phone. I said, who is that? I have no idea. So uh, I come in Monday, and Ann says, oh, by the way, this guy called from Jordan, and uh, better call him back. And I, so I said, oh, okay, call him back. And he says, well, I expect you to be in my office in two hours. You got an interview. You, we talked on Saturday. I went, holy smokes. Well, Jordan was not in the phone book, and I didn't know, there was no directions how to get there. And I remember driving around trying to find this place. And finally I drive past the vineyard and there was this old, old sign. I felt, 
I, I was so late on that. This is not going to happen anyway. And so, uh, but it was probably a payphone at the Jimtown store. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but fortunately, I was going by the vineyard shop and saw this sign that said Jordan Vineyard. That apparently I learned later was a uh, was an old disc from a plow that they painted these gypsies came along and painted Jordan Vineyard and I went oh my god this is Jordan Vineyard and he goes no no it's up the hill and so I drove up the hill <clears throat> again no construction signs anything and all of a sudden I see this incredible winery going up and these carpenters are pounding away on uh, the frame for this uh, for the walls that are going to be poured and I said can you tell me where Jordan Winery is and he goes hey, dude this is it you know <laughs> It wasn't even built yet. So my interview was in this old construction trailer, and every time somebody stepped in, it would tip one way or the other. Hilarious. Um, but what was key, I think, in the interview was uh, the gentleman's name was Chuck Jones. He'd worked at Mondavi, which had, at the time, a uh, Britannomyces uh, issue, spoilage yeast, uh, what we call spoilage yeast at the time. And... Um, he was terrified of it. And so here he had this new winery and it was making sure he did, was not going to make sure that uh, Jordan wasn't going to get Britannomyces. And so the interview was going along okay. And then I thought, you know, I'm just not used to, I just had a bad feeling. It wasn't going great. And he goes, okay, we'll give you a call back, which basically means, you know, like right. Tucker to use car, man. Oh, I'll be right back. And you know, it's not going to happen. And he goes, oh, uh, I just got one more question. What do you know about Britannomyces? Well, I just so happened to isolate it for Ralph Conkey. When a lot of the industry sent their wines in with faults, and they had to figure out what it was, and I just isolated, and I said, oh, well, do you mean pretend Meister Decker? And he goes, what's the difference? And I go, well, one's sporulized, one does, and the Decker is sporulized, blah, blah. And I just gave the whole Bergie's manual taxonomy, and he goes, you're hired. <laughs> and uh, and that was that was <laughs> such an amazing beginning for me. And then when I really, I had not been on to a chill chef at the time, but the next, my first day uh, when I showed up, so this was vintage number one? Yeah, 1976. Uh, just, again, you know, I'd already worked the summer with Ann, but now I was working. And I, my whole plan was to work at a winery, get some harvest experience, and then go back to Davis and then finish off my master's. And I already did as an undergrad a lot of my grad work. Um, so it was pretty easy. And Ann was going to be your major professor? I, you know, I hopefully, yeah, because uh, she and I were so close. And... Uh, and still are. She's just an amazing, amazing person. So, um, but then uh, uh, Mike Rowan, who was basically Tom Jordan's right hand man, was not only charged with the general manager of developing the winery, but also was in charge of the vineyard. And he comes where well, I'm at ten o'clock break, and he comes up and says, "Hop in the truck. You're 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 my new you're my new assistant." And I said, "No, I'm working for no no. You're working for me. My your job is to be out in the vineyard uh, taking samples of." Just our own estate vineyard, uh, but the rest of our growers that I've, I've, you know, contracted with to make the, the first vintage. And I went, well, okay, you know, whatever. I, well, I was, I was just happy to have a job. And I, it could not have been better for me because to be exposed to the growers uh, at that point, you know, my career, the early part was, was wonderful because it really was, a, as I learned later, the foundation of great wine is in the vineyard. And so to start out, day one for Jordan, seeing what the vineyards were, the source of the fruit for their first wine was, was such a great opportunity. You know, and then we're so small, I could do that as well as work in the lab and then the cellar as well. So it was a very uh, composite job of, of everything you'd want in terms of learning how to be a winemaker. Learned that, you know, the, the lab part was probably the easiest because they were taught that at Davis, but 
to learn the vineyard aspects, you know, and how the fruit was developing in Elgin Valley, uh, and, the, and the different variations of the growers and, and sites that we had, as well as working in the cellar, you know, pounding hoops, uh, moving wine, uh, pumping, or doing all those things that, you know, normal practices. I, you could you could not have a better training the first year for me. And so, do you remember your first the first time you met Andre? I do, and I couldn't pronounce his last name. He's just, he just he showed up, and and Andre was great with younger people. So I was working in the lab, and Andre walked up because uh, he was our uh, one of the most brilliant things Tom Jordan did. Um, so many, but one was to hire Andre Chelichev, uh because Andre was the winemaker Bolu Vineyard for the wine that really turned the corner for Tom's uh, decision to stay in California uh, to build this classic winery that he, that he had in his mind that he wanted to do rather than to go in the, because he loved, his foundation of, of, of or benchmark of great wines was Bordeaux and the premier for uh, Grand Cruz were his benchmark. And so he wanted to create a California wine that uh, mirrored that. And it was... Uh, and to just to do a little background for that, one of the most high, highlight tasting for me was which Grand Cru was he after? You know, it's it's a it's it's, it's almost like okay, I want to build a car. It's got to be a Ferrari. You know, well, how about you know how about a good truck? You know, to start out with. But it was his goal to I don't want anything less than than perfect is something that it's not acceptable. So we had a tasting of all the the first grows and. It, and to see that very, I mean, these are all great wines, but each one had its own personality. And the one that Tom Jordan picked, which is classic, uh, what Jordan has found in uh, the benchmark for it, is the uh, Chateau Lafitte. Because it was, it wasn't like Latour where you're going to have to wait around for 20 years for it to come around. It was very forward, full of fruit. And that's what Tom Jordan wanted, it was something full of fruit. And so that compared well to the type of wine that Andre made. And as when Tom was, you know, kind of fable story at this point, it, history of Jordan was that Tom was loved going to restaurants. And when he visited San Francisco and was at Ernie's restaurant, one of his favorite restaurants, uh, and the sommelier knew Tom's order all the time was, I want, you know, I want a Lafitte uh, or at least a first growth. And so, well, you should try this other wine, uh, Mr. Jordan. It's, it's, I think you really like it. It's a Bolivian Vineyard Pride Reserve, uh, 1968. And Tom just said, wow. Oh, yeah. Wow, this wine is amazing, and he says so. I don't have to go to France; I can be here. And and then Andre had was already in retirement, well, already consulting, I should say. Uh, his last year was, was BB, I think, seventy two, and then he went in there to consulting. And um, Tom picked him up right away, and that was such a great decision. So, so here you are; you've just started. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I, so how did you meet Andre? Andre was, you, you're saying you couldn't pronounce his name. Yeah, Charlie Jeff. So he said, "Oh, you can say Charlie Jeff." Uh, <laughs> but he was. Uh, you were saying how good he was with young people. He is, and he he loves teaching, and he he and he, he can equate on very more simple terms the complexities of wine. So, but you know, it's classic. He had his he had his. It was ubiquitous Carlton cigarettes constantly at his fingertips, and 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 he couldn't when he he couldn't walk and talk at the same time. So we'd be walking down the stairs, and be I'd be talking to him, and then he wouldn't comment back, and then he'd have to stop and turn around and then tell me what the answer was. But uh, I didn't know there, you know, 
I knew the professors at Davis, but I had no knowledge in terms of who Andre Chelchev was. And so you know, it didn't take long to get some research to find out what an amazing, amazing history he had. And God, the anecdotes that he shared with me, uh, how far just our industry had come since he started in 1938. I right. mean, we, we, we take for granted, like I said, the sanitation practices we have now, but uh, he said he worked tirelessly, you know, 70 hour work weeks, you know, trying to clean up what was at Beaulieu and Beaulieu Vineyard stayed throughout state and business uh, through prohibition by making sacramental wines. So he told me the story where <clears throat> I think it was the third year at, at Beaulieu and his house was very close to the, to the winery. And about two in the morning, this cellarman is pounding on his door, completely drunk and Andre answers it. He goes, my God, man, what are you doing? It's two in the morning. He goes, the winery's on fire. And he goes, oh, my God, we, we, what are you doing here? We need to put the fire out. He goes, no, 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 don't you know what this means? All new equipment. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the stuff that Andre says, the, the sanitation practices, that we had stainless steel at Jordan, but it was... Uh, Iron, old iron pipes that they had to work with. And oh, and I, you've read Dick Peterson's book about the plywood, uh, the plywood crush receiver. And I mean, it, it, you know, when you hear that story out of context, you think, oh, what a cynical guy. You just wanted new equipment. No, what they were dealing with was, oh, was it's, horrible. It's hard to believe. And, and in fact, when the winery did burn, it burned. They were just doing the blend and all the tanks were partial. So there were Andre had work orders that okay when we come in we're going to go ahead and top them up, but so the fire burned down the tanks to the level of the wine because they were redwood tanks. Yeah, and you think oh my god you know we got to we got to get new tanks? No, they just put new tops on them. Opened up and Andre said <laughs> it was a winemaker's dream because instead of okay, we have a 6,000-gallon tank, break that down to 3,000 to 1,500. He goes, oh, no, we have the 2,654-gallon tank that's perfect for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, my first visit with Andre, and he had these keen eyes and, and a great sense of humor, a great wit. Uh, but also, he would look and, and ask me what I was doing, and i tell him, and then he would, and his sage advice would start coming out and say, well, I Sir, I think you need to do this and do this, do this. He would call you sir. Well, well, my dear sir, that was a that was a classic, Andre. My dear sir. Well, my dear sir, that changed because um, Andre was consulting with so many other wineries, you know, up and down the coast or the coast of California, as well as uh, uh, not as much Oregon at the time, but Washington, San Michel, and in fact, San Michel at the time did not put their Cabernet through malolactic, so you had these very acidic. Cabernets. So, uh, again, charged with um, uh, not making, ensuring that our Jordan wines did not have any Britannomyces. So, one of the things we knew, and certainly uh, prevalent in Napa, was how incestuous our business is. So, we not only bought each other's used, you know, our bulk wines and, and put them in our own blends, but we bought used barrels and then used those up because barrels were very expensive, so a lot of people couldn't afford new oak. So, well, I will buy, I'll buy the wonderful Robert Mondavi Reserve barrels, you know, which are four years old, and I'll put our wine in it, and it'll be really nice. So, um, the decision was, well, we're not certainly going to go to Napa because that's a great way of infesting 
this quarantine winery that's not going to allow any kind of bug in, uh, even the mild driveway up the hill won't make it that far. So, but we still needed used barrels. We're a brand new winery, and we, the type of wine, the fresh fruit kind of soft tannin type of wines would not do well in 100% new oak. So the decision was, well, let's go to Chateau Lafitte because that's Tom Jordan's favorite wine. And let's go there and get their two-year-old barrels that they rotate each out. And the and Tom Jordan said, well, whatever they have can't be too bad because I love that <laughs> wine. So, uh, you know, being a single man in Hillsburg, which at the time was nothing nearly as uh, socially classy as it is now. And I had weekends where I just come in and I love doing the research work that I did on my own. So I would go in and uh, on a Saturday and Sunday and go into the used barrels that came in from Lafitte and then take uh, basically a, a sterile Swiss army knife and then take some of the wood. That a that sterile it, Swiss army knife, yeah, a typical <laughs> analytical tool. Well, put it in alcohol and flame it, you know, that was it. But then, you know, I would take, uh, uh, cut in some of the uh, stave wood inside the barrels, you know, for a sample. And then I started putting in a yeast, fight, yeast modified Rigotha broth, you know, grow this up. And Andre just was in heaven because he, he really uh, had such a strong microbiological background. Uh, originally, he wanted to be a doctor. Uh, yeah. And um, as he and said, he had attended the Sorbonne. Yeah. yeah he said, uh, my, life, my life is all about necessity, not choosing exactly what he maybe what his love was, but just suiting it, and winemaking became his necessity. But he had a strong, strong mycological background, so he'd come in and goes, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, Andre, you know, I, I'm trying to make sure that none of these barrels we have is, is infected with Britannomyces, so uh, this is what I'm doing. And he looked under the microscope, and it was, to see his eyes light up, and just, oh my God, you got this, you got this, you got this, and I said, Wonder what I first have to do is separate the yeast from the bacteria. But I said, I think we got a lot of malactive bacteria here. And he goes, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to isolate it. And then I'm going to, then I said, well, I'm going to start testing out in terms of these malactive bacteria and which ones are more tolerant to some of the difficulties of getting it to go through in, a, in, a, in your wine. So SO2 tolerance, pH tolerance, and uh, temperature tolerance. And so out of... God, I probably had like 20 different malactic that I had isolated, and I ended up with four that were really good testing it in wine. And But sensory-wise, one in particular, Andre said, man, man, this one's really good. It's clean. It doesn't get that garlicky kind of sulfide kind of characteristic. It's very clean, and it really uh, leaves the fruit. And I said, well, okay, let's start growing it up. So... Uh, that 77 year was the first year I started the new malactic that I isolated from the Chateau Lafitte barrels, and it just did phenomenally well. And for whatever reason, the wineries that Andre was consulting for had difficulties going through malactic. So I, I think we, I never told this to Tom Jordan, but I think we probably could have done at least maybe 20 cases more of wine than we, than we bottled that year because I was giving Andre to always want a sample of it. And, you know, I'd just take a basically go into a tank that just finished malactic and put it into a jug and say, here you go. And um, it worked out really well for the other wineries. Uh, Chateau Saint-Michel particularly because they really liked what happened when the malactic went through their wine. And those are really low pHs. Yeah, way. they're starting with low pH, so they yeah. probably needed a very tolerant uh, it bacteria. Worked, it, it worked out perfectly. It's to the, to the level that I got a, a legal... <laughs> A, a, lot, a letter from Santa Michelle from their lawyers saying that, you know, U.S. tobacco is on the 
a moniker there, and they said, you know, we we really liked your malactic, and we want to make it our own. I said, well, <laughs> you can make it your own. It's I'm not charging for it, but Andre's already <laughs> like a like a bee pollinating the whole field. You know, he's spread it all over. So you're gonna you're gonna have to send letters out to the rest of the industry. I said, but um, if somebody wants this culture out there, do his bottle of, buy a bottle of Jordan Cabernet because we don't. You know, it doesn't go through a 0.5 micron filter. It's it's there in the bottle. Uh, to this point, uh, I just want to bring up this other answer. It was fun about Andre and had his and his ability to. I think a lot of the people that uh, that hired him as consultant didn't understand just how brilliant he was. But his one of his favorite vintages uh, was the um, 42 uh, BV and. Uh, particularly of the um, as Pinot Noir. So uh, when I was house and uh, it was Dorothy's daughter's uh, birth year, and so we were having this wine, and went, wow, wow, this. And he says, and Andre looked at me, and he said, normally he doesn't praise his wine, but he says, he says, this is a really good one. So I said, can I have the bottle? And and, I, and he says, oh, certainly take the bottle with you. And so I took it because it still had some of the dregs from the wine, and so I isolated the malactic bacteria in in the wine put it on a plate, and when Andre walked in, he goes, well, what are you looking at? And I said, well, it's a little surprise for you, Andre. I want to show you this. And he looked in the microscope, and he goes, oh, my God, there they are, my little children. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know that that came from a Yes, of course I know my bad like that. They're my children, and this came from a bowl you've in your bottle. I said, yeah, it came from that 42. And, he's, and he shook my hand. He goes, thank you. This is such a, uh, it's such a present, you know. So after that, did you isolate that? Did you? I did. I did. After a while, I had it down pretty easily. You know, it's uh, the do the serial dilution, all that. We taught at Davis really came in handy. But um, so after that, Andre would come in. You know, and, and Andre would so punctual. Nine o'clock. You could set your clock to nine o'clock in the morning because he left his house at eight and it's an hour drive from Napa, and he'd arrive. But you'd first uh, sit down and. He'd go through a couple Carlton cigarettes to prep his palate. And then uh, he'd have his, he's just, the coffee had to be, in his word, own words, scalding hot, scalding hot. And I remember him telling Rick Sayre, and Rick says, God, Andre, this you'll burn your lips on this. He goes, well, where I come from, you appreciate things that are warm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know being almost frozen to death when he was in Moscow, uh, was, in, was in Russia. So... Uh, We'd have his, you know, his coffee and his cigarettes, and then we would talk about anything and everything, you know, what was going on and the previous party he was at, and a lot of local gossip. But it was just great fun. Uh, but also, he would, uh, I think, I didn't understand that there was an intent to the conversations. But you know, what? How are you doing? How are you doing? You know, oh, things, Andre, things could not be better. You know, I've solved all the problems in the wine. Everything could be better. He goes, oh my dear sir, there's always clouds behind the sun. And I, oh, okay. And then he got to bring me down. And then sometimes he'd show up and I'd go, oh, God, Andre, I got so many problems, I don't even know where to start. Oh, there's always a rainbow in the sky, you know. And, <laughs> and so one time I said, you know, Andre, I finally figured, this was quite a while later, I said, you know, Andre, I just thought our conversations when we meet, you know, before we go taste the wines, it's just about local gossip or whatever. I said, but you gauged, gauged my uh, mood, and then if I'm down, you bring me up. I'm up, you bring me down because you taste wines better that way and you don't let your emotions dictate. And he goes, took you four years to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
But uh, then he, so he started calling me doctor. And I thought, you know, Andre had nicknames for everybody. And well, why does he call me doctor? Maybe because he knew because I was going to, that's what, when I first went to Davis, I went pre-med program because my folks wanted to be a doctor. And so I goes, finally said, Andre, oh, why do you call me doctor? And he goes, because you, I give you a PhD for that work you did with the malactic, you know, that was brilliant. And I said, you know, I was hoping to get a PhD after I got my master's, but I think the Andre Chelcha PhD means a lot more to me than what I might have got at some <laughs> university. Uh, so even a lot of the friends at this day still call me doctor. You know, I'll run into one of the Andre's students and, oh, doctor's here. So, but it really meant a lot to me. Uh, but, you know, the I think getting into the importance of Andre and how it how it really influenced my personal winemaking, because I always say Andre defined... Andre defines the winemaking at Jordan. And because so much of what we learned from Andre, I was on the phone constantly with him. If he was a lawyer charging by the phone calls, I think uh, he probably would have made a million dollars the first year. Because Andre, what about this? What about this? What about this? And, you know, the, the questions I had were maybe uh, rather parochial at the time, but from his point of view, we still be patient at the answer. Oh, this what this is this is where I think you we take we take for granted how simple winemaking is. We taste a great wine, but it is very complex and there's so many things that can go wrong that you know you and I learned, Dan, that the professors, I mean, Professor O told us all the things that would get us fired. Well, if you over-refrigerate a wine, you're going to get this, and this will get you fired. And, and he just terrified me, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job the first day. Uh, but, but that's what they were trying to iron out, make sure that if you're going to make the problems, make them in the classroom, but don't do it in, do it when you get out in a real job. So, uh, but, but you and uh, Andre must have taught you a lot about vineyards. You talk well, about going out in vineyards with him, and, and I know he was legendary about his, his interest in the vines and how that affected wine quality. By far, that's the most important thing. He, and I didn't get that right away because I think, you know, he would see me in the lab and we'd go out and taste the tanks, but it was always in terms of what, uh, what analysis I would do, what additions I should do, what, you know, uh, findings I would do, whatever. But it was really the travels that, you know, beginning in 1978, my uh, going into my third year at Jordan where I traveled extensively with Andre. Uh, we... We started out in Paris, of course, but then we ended up at um, the Rhone Valley. We ended up the Loire Valley. We ended up the southern part of France. And was he known in France? People knew who oh, he was? He, he, that's the thing I first realized. He was better known in France than he was in California, and that's saying something. But it, he never made wine in France. Uh, he, he, he knew, so he studied with Emil Penot and Pascal Ribeiro Gallon, and that's where he learned the winemaking at, 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 uh, at university there and then, were they in paris at that time no uh he went uh, you know that's a great question i'm going to talk to dorothy about that because i do know that it's is in fact uh, uh dr peterson richard peterson in his book talks about this that he studied with these luminaries you know that really you got the same books that i have when we were at, at right. the university of bordeaux uh that was a hoot you know living in the dorms there that um, was <laughs> i learned a lot about france in particular but um you know, to, 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 I really got to know some of the professors there. Um, Madame Lafon was just one of the sharpest mm. cookies in microbiology, and, I, and the things I learned from her about yeast survival factors. But, uh, but 
Pasco Ribrogallon Jr., his father, worked with Andre. And so Andre never really spoke much about that. But I think a lot of, I know Rob Rondavi did a lot of travels through Europe spreading the goodwill of, of California wines. Andre also took a lot of students uh, like myself. But I was on already his third trip. Uh, he'd had two previous trips that he took other winemakers through. And I, and maybe that's why. I have to talk to Dorothy about exactly why, why, what his reputation. But I got to tell you, I, I've, there's so many instances I can tell you where he was just treated like a god, you know. And we were, I was driving uh, in the Rhone Valley, uh, shouting up the pop specifically. And I said, Andre, there's something, looks like we're, our, our lunch guests are having a little party already. And he goes, pull over, pull over. And they had, the owner had hired uh, a local dancing uh, troupe in period costumes. And when Andre arrived, they're all dancing and singing for Andre. And then, of course, this tremendous buffet that uh, provided for Andre. And then, of course, without every single one would say, Andre, you know, what can we, what can we open for you? You know, whatever one it is. And, of course, Andre, Andre would say <laughs> this one time, he says, we want to drink the oldest wine in the house. And Dorothy, I don't know if they had this, this plan or whatever, but Dorothy gently would whap on and goes, Andre, where's your manners? You know, we're at this great chateau and, and you're his guest. Oh, no, no, Dorothy, Dorothy. We want, to, we want to do what Andre wants, whatever it is. And so Andre was, but we have the doctor here. He needs to taste these wines. And I'm going, yeah, 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 let's do it. So this over and over and over time, so many great relationships were shared by Andre that he knew. And who was on these trips? Was it just you and Andre or was it a group? Uh, it was a combination. Sometimes it was just me and Andre uh, and Dorothy. And uh, then uh, other trips would be a group. And, you know, you'd, I think now with the, uh, they're always, I, I always take vacation time, pay my own way, but it was the best money I've ever spent. And, but it so was how, how many of the how many of so, these trips did you do with him? Well, it, so his a combination. I think there were at least three trips. I know particularly come to mind that I took specifically just with Andre, but then the exposure that he provided on those trips where I could come back my on my own, and that's where you and I come in. Is that uh, you know I'd be like at uh, Obreon and. Uh, Jean Delmas, and I'd show up the door, and he's very brilliant mind as well. And and he goes, well, you know, we, we I, my name's Rob Davis. I work at you know winemaker Jordan Winery, and and uh, you know I'd like to tour because my my boss Tom Jordan is really into the first gross and loves your wine. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Davis, we we really don't do tours here, and and so I do the pull out my little introduction because Andre says, where are you going? And I give him the whole itinerary, and he wrote. He hand wrote all these letters of introduction and signed Andre Chelchap. Well, it was, if there was a cure for cancer and you give it to a doctor, that would be it. So I would show up and say, well, hmm, well, I got this note from Andre Chelchap, and it's all in French because Andre's French was so spot on. And Mr. Chelchap, you know Andre, you work with Andre. Well, and all of a sudden the doors would open, and you know, <laughs> and it was just it was a whole different world and this t happened time after time after time his reputation just was so profound and to be on his coattails was my introduction to to friends that we still know Jean-Claude Barraway was a good example and uh, but Jean Damas you know I would see him at some wine festival in Texas and he'd come up and goes Rob how are you you know and we just got to be more than just 
we more professional friends just got to be true friends. And so I just almost every year I'd go back uh, to France and renew those acquaintances to where now it's like, now the sons are the ones that are in charge. Yes, yes. And but it's although although there, you know, I tell I tell you a great story. Um, a restaurant here in town opened um, on June fifth uh, for for in house, you know, in sit down service, and they've been very um, instrumental. Shout out to La Toque. They've been very instrumental mm. in uh, feeding, sending meals to the homeless shelter, and. Uh, keeping the kitchen staff fully employed. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Feeding first responders, et cetera. And so I really wanted to support them. And so um, we had everyone in the family got COVID tested and we reserved a table for seven. We went in, they checked our temperatures and uh, Sam brought a, brought a bottle of Chesson Montrachet and we ordered a, a, a beautiful champagne and we're going through the menu and and i look at the wine list and you know i see they had a 61 calon sugur mm. um at a you know a lot less than you'd pay for screaming eagle um <laughs> and they also had a 62 lynch bosch so uh richard the sommelier came over and i said well you know i'm toying with 61 versus Lynch Baj, you know, Poyak against Santa Steph. Go take a look in the cellar and tell me which is the better fill level and uh -huh. looks like it has the better cork. He comes back, he says, Lynch Baj, hands down. Mm. So we had a 62 Lynch Baj and the wine was brilliant. Did uh, now you decanted it, correct? Decanted it just before serving. Okay. Just so, before like, serving. Like 10 minutes of air or something and then <laughs> or not even less. That. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the great part of the story is I I hesitated, but I thought, well, you know, the worst worst that can happen is he'll just be annoyed with me, you know. But I had, I had talked to Jean-Michel when I was in Bordeaux in April last year. So I sent Jean-Michel Caz a picture of the label oh, and, wow. and a note. And he was, I mean, he responded immediately. You know, you made my day. Uh, I like the 62 better than the 61. And when I moved to the Chateau in 73, it was our wine of choice to serve to guests and on and on and on. And it was just oh. talk about you know, these contacts. Those uh, relationships are literally, you can't put a price on them. Because, exactly. Because there you realize it's not just a job for them. It's their heart. Their heart, their yeah. passion's into it. And this is where the passion I had for wine. I mean, Andre and I were so simpatico in that regards. We, we shared so much of that. And we get so excited about when we taste together and I would get excited about a certain wine and then he would just jump right on top of that. Uh, it wasn't, this is where I think that I, 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 like I said, my life has been full of serendipity, but I just feel so fortunate for all the relationships I have because they're, you can't put a dollar value. I always told the Jordans I'd work for nothing and Tom would just go, you know, I could take care of that. Yeah. Said, really, well. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, what, I think what, what you're speaking to and, and, what I think I'm trying to identify with this podcast, not only the technical expertise of being able to identify uh, 
yeast and malolactic and isolate them and having the skills and understand the, the sanitation and the microbiology, but then also the passion about the product, the, the, the fraternal sense we have with other people that share that passion and how that ripples through, you know, in our case, you know, decades of careers in wine. I, I think that um, well, how that informs how we how we make decisions. Haven't you seen that passion is probably echoed best when you're in the vineyard? You know, with with the the relationships I have with the growers and 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 then you know with Andre when I was in Europe and the relationships that the winemakers, without exception, always started talking about the vineyard first. You know, and then say, oh, by the way, God, they got this miracle yeast that'll do a great job, or or even you know, like my malactic. It was always. I got this great piece of ground. I just last uh, year I was at the, in Cortina, Italy, where they had this wine festival with all Italians, and virtually, virtually every single one was so excited to talk about their their vineyard. And the one that I really prickly, I'm so disappointed with this quarantine that I had set up. I've been invited to Sicily. I've never been to Sicily, but when I first smelled this wine, I said, "Oh." This is on volcanic soil, but it's up. It's an elevated vineyard. He goes, yes, yes, it, you know, a thousand meters or whatever. And then I tasted another one, and I said, this one is, must be close to a vineyard that's close to the coast. He goes, yes, you know that. And I said, well, I learned that from Andre. And Andre would, we would, visiting, um, you know, particular, uh, to give an example, we were visiting uh, the great winemaker, the Adagno, and of uh, the Silex of fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the fact. You know, I guess <laughs> we'd ever know when our last day is, but his last day was, uh, a, unfortunately, a, a plane crash when it was right. ultralized. But he crashed because he was chasing birds out of his vineyard, you know? And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, I, I mean, know that, that was where his heart was, you know, get these damn vineyards out, you know, and these birds. But uh, his, his hair was always on fire. But I, that was a man that really knew uh, certainly the, the vineyards of the Loire, but also uh, a Sancerre. And I, but I didn't know this. And so I'm, Driving along, just trying to make sure I, you know, I got this great prize with me, Andre and Dorothy Jelchev, and we just don't get in an accident. And Andre goes, "Doctor, pull over, pull over." And I said, oh, "Okay, you know." So I pull over, and you know, Europe is a little bit differently than it is in the United States. You know, you got to find the gas station where you use the bathroom. Right. You, know, you just, well, you know this. Is this a premier Grand Cru? You know, <laughs> it's the only place I'll pee in. And so. Um, we pull over, you know, and I kind of turn away, you know, so Andre has a little bit of privacy, and he goes, doctor, doctor, no, 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 follow me. And I said, oh, okay. So we, we go under this fence, and we, it's the vineyard, and he puts his hand in the soil, and he, sh- he tells me to do the same thing, and I rub my hands, and he says, now smell it. You'll smell this in the wine. I'm going, you're putting me on. I'm going to smell the dirt that's in the wine we're going to have? Well, we had we finished off with a wonderful Silex, uh, uh, the Adagano, and I looked at Andre and went, Oh my God! I can smell it. I can smell the soil. You're weird. I mean, you took a lot of the courses that I took at Davis. Not once did they teach you the goût de terroir, the taste of the soil. You know, this soil is good for water retention. This water, da da da. You know, balance of vigor, um, too much vigor. That you need this different rootstock. Not once they say mention goût de terroir. And Andre, it was like fall off his lips so easily. And I said, I really didn't understand it till I started doing the same thing. And um, Gelasio, at the time, the winemaker at Ornelia told me the story just when I was in Cortina with him having dinner. And he says, 
we, we, we could not have had a better consultant than Andre. Stubborners could be just what we needed because the entrepreneurs, you know, had this thing, well, we know what we're doing. And Andre was hired there to take a look at our vineyard. And we were just developing this new vineyard and it was going to be Cabernet. And on our map, uh, it said Cabernet Sauvignon. Andre goes, no, 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 Merlot. He goes, no, we don't want to do Merlot. We want to do Cabernet. No, no, Merlot. This is soil. Because he put his, Angelazzo said he put his hand, just like I saw him, put his hand in the soil, smell it, and say, it's Merlot. I mean, it's, it's almost like a shaman. I was like, you could, you, you, you know, some, maybe he's a showman or whatever, but it's really true. You can really smell and taste the soil. So I, um, Gelasio said, when, when Andre left, because he was flying out the next morning, and I looked up at the map, and I saw this crossed-out Cabernet and Andre's letters writing Merlot. <laughs> and he said, so we planted Merlot, and it's considered one of the great Merlots in the world. You Not just Italy, great wines of the world. Oh, and, yeah, that's Italian And Merlots this happened over and over and over again with Andre, you know, and, and where I really, that was probably one of the best things I learned is to put my hand, feel the soil, and then smell it, and then see, you know, and I... I when I was in Italy, I, I just had a good day, but I was doing this and go, oh, this is good for this, this is good for this, and I just, uh, this is highly vigorous soil, I wouldn't touch this. He goes, yes, I, we were having a huge problem with that. And, um, uh, and that, was, that was one of the most valuable lessons I've learned that worked with Andre. And so uh, relationships that I started when I, in 2005, when John Jordan came on, because we had a, our state vineyard was this deep, fertile, loamy soil. And um, Andre, <laughs> I think we were in this th third year with Andre. I'd already been to my first trip with France, and I'd come back. And, and you know, now I'd seen the, the vineyards of France and understand, you know, what their planning was about. And so we're standing there in the Jordan Estate, and Andre's got his famous, you know, Carlton, he's smoking away. And I said, Andre, so uh, Tom Jordan wants to produce a great, great first growth that competes, you know, with the great wines of, of Bordeaux. Uh, so this vineyard must be, you know, Tom Jordan could afford anything. This must be a, a great spot for that. And he says, no. He says, it's not good for Cabernet? He goes, no. I said, well, Merlot? No. I said, well, what then? He goes, hey, oh, no, alfalfa. Very good for alfalfa. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. It's just that we fought... Um, that methoxypyrazine, green bean, you know, herbaceous character in that vineyard just because it was just could not get the balance in the vines. So vigorous soil. It, uh, when we get a quarter of an inch of rain, we'd have ducks floating in the vineyard. No. It, just, it was horrible. And when John Jordan came on in 2005, and I adore Tom Jordan. I mean, he was just so brilliant in so many ways. But uh, And here's, he's, a, he's a geologist by nature as an oil well man, but I realized that Tom doesn't get excited until... He's looking at earth a mile deep in the in the ground. You know, the first six feet is not much interesting yeah. to us. So uh, when I I met John when he first came on, and he says, you know, I said, what do you want to do? You know, do you want to do you want to keep doing what your father does? And I said, I, I think that'd be a horrible idea. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to take what Andre taught me, and then and then make an impact on the wines. I think that. Jordan should be in the future. I said, I want to find much better fruit than what we're dealing with now. And he says, I don't care about authorship. You do what you, uh, you do what you need to do to find great fruit. I don't care if it comes from our state, just find great fruit. Oh my God, if I had wings, I could have flown around the world. And, and so I, I started 
doing what Andre taught me. I'd go out and and some of these guys, you know them, Dick Dilworth, old school, comes out, well, what you doing, Rob? And I said, and I'm putting my hand in the soil, <laughs> and, you know, rubbing it. And I said, oh, my God, Dick. I said, uh, you've got a great piece of ground, but it needs a little bit of help from, you know, certain things. And it was an old vineyard needed to be replanted. And so, we, so he just, you just tell me what you want to do. And so I worked with him over a period of time. And uh, I, I told him, I said, you know, you're, you're, every winemaker's dream is to get less than three tons of the acre, but this should do better. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're, you're fighting some virus and other issues. And I said, that's a great piece of ground. I said, if you, if you, not that I know everything, but if you follow my advice, you should be able to get 100 tons out of here. Well, Dick, so he didn't even know how many, t- how many acres he had. Because uh, when I finally got him to do uh, Brett Munsell to, harvest for he him. knew how many horses he had yeah right? absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so i said you, know, you should be looking at 100 tons out of here and he goes why and he goes well you've got 22 acres how do you know that and i said because i counted every single vine and you know this is what you got and brett munsell started laughing he goes you know that's funny because i charge not by the ton i charge by the acre and when i went to dick says how many acres you got he goes, well, i don't know <laughs> I don't know. I said, I think he got about, I think I did about 80. Oh, sounds about right. So I said, no, Brett, I know exactly how much you did. This is, and so I gave him all the maps, but it was so much fun to see that vineyard that was already a great vineyard achieve the, the status that I was hoping for. Mm. So last year when I went and saw Dick and I said, so what was the totals? And he says, 99.6 tons. You were 0.4 tons over. You lost your edge, Rob. <laughs> so <laughs> I was so proud of that, you know, to, to take a grower and a great piece of ground and, and have it be beneficial for both sides. Yeah. So, and, and we've, um, I mean, you, you know Alexander Valley just as well as you do Napa, and uh, I've not been able to explore Napa for Jordan uh, because we've founded our reputation on the Alexander Valley fruit, but the variations in those soils in Alexander Valley are huge. Huge. Yeah. And so you could say, and that's, I, I've been a proponent is that don't say it's from Alexander Valley, say where in Alexander Valley, depending on which side of the river you're on, huge. And, uh, and I really got to know those, but that was, that was my, that was my gift. And, and I, I, um, the only problems I could say is that, when your winemaking starts out in the vineyard, like I always did every morning, uh, you, you lack the visibility of everyone at the winery. So when you show up around noontime, a lot of people think you're just getting there. <laughs> yeah, know? right. Well, I slept in, huh? No, I've been out in the morning, you know. But I, I, uh, I, I, that was my solace, to be out there every morning and sharing conversation with all the growers and then just walking the field. Uh, I, yeah. I, like I said, I couldn't believe I was getting paid for that, but... But you really, you, I mean, you, you, I've seen you do the same thing, Dan, where you're out there and you just see things that you can't see from your desk. No, you can't. And you, know, and you don't know what you're going to see. Yeah, yeah, and that's the fun of it. So, Rob, you were talking about taking Andre on his 88th birthday on the wine train. It was, a, it was a surprise, a little surprise so-called party that Dorothy put on because uh, it kind of also defined the relationship, close relationship the two of us had. So it was just my wife and I and Andre and Dorothy. And the, the speed of the train could not have been per, more perfect because it was slow. And we just, as we went along, and we had like 45 minutes before we sat down for dinner. So we're looking out the window, and through the whole 
you know, all the way from Napa all the way up to the end, Andre's pointing out, oh, my God, there was my first lab. And I said, you had your own laboratory? He goes, yes, I had my I had the only one in the whole Napa Valley that had a microscope. And I said, wow. I said, you're kidding me. Nobody else? And he goes, well, doctor, there was only six other wineries in the whole Napa Valley. <laughs> and you know, what, you know what his company, what his lab was called? I do not. Enological testing services. Really? Yeah. Oh my he, God. He had ETS a, before there was ETS. He is such a visionary. You know? And he created, so Andre in 1947 was the impetus for the Napa Valley Wine Technical Group. Yes. Which still exists. <laughs> yes. And he and Robert Mondavi and Peter Mondavi and Louis Martini, there were. He, he, dre- he Joe Heights, I think, too. Dragged up 12, 11 other wineries so they could host one a month. You know, Dan, you, you, you were such a wonderful friend. You invited me to the 50th. Oh, you can't, yeah. Yeah, and I'm standing next to Dorothy Chalachev, and this is funny because, as and I, I'm probably guilty as well, but we all tend to, there's not a story we don't love embellishing. So you had these. I call them the aristocrats of Napa Valley, Robert Madavi, Louis Martini, probably the most humblest one of all. But It's probably the last public uh, talk that Louis gave. Oh, my God. And each one, you know, would give their memories of Andre. Uh, but then then after they gave uh, certainly their honored Andre, then they would go on how important they were in the industry and their own stories. And Dorothy would say, that's not true. That's not true. I, I, I was there. That's not true. <laughs> I said, Dorothy, you need to write a book on the real things oh, that happened. Boy, but she? anyway, I think what that was so key, I think, to what Andre did. Like I said, the most, most important thing he did for me is, is teach me about great wines aboard in the vineyard. But what he did for Napa Valley in particular and that group, um, tasting group, he completely d- got rid of the whole... Um, protectionism and secrecy that each winery yes. had. Yes. And I was like, you know, this is not Detroit where the new model coming out, we don't want to have anybody to know about until they do, or Apple computer, or this is new coming out, the new technology we don't want to share with anybody. And Andre said, for this industry, this early industry to survive, we all need to share our information. We all need to yeah. be doing research. And, and to this day, that sense of, friendships and sharing. I always say the best people in the whole world are people in the wine business because if 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 my next door neighbor needs a pump, borrow ours. You know, there's yeah. it's that kind of um, camaraderie that we all share, and it's there's nothing per, uh, secret at all that I that I don't mind sharing at all. If I can help somebody else make a better wine, that makes me better. So, but that's yeah. that that was Andre's intent is that. Um, for this industry to do well. And it, we, like I said, we take for granted how much better wines we're making today. But for us to succeed, we need to be doing our own research. And uh, that, that's, that, that uh, the Napa Valley uh, Tasting Group was, was pivotal, I think. Technical group. Yeah. Technical group was pivotal yeah. in... in um, Setting that tone, yes. Setting that tone of sharing, and 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 Robert Mondavi is given a, a lot of and deservedly credit, yes, for saying, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he learned it from Andre. 
Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So speaking of, of friendship, uh, yeah. let's talk about that, that uh, for me, uh, pivotal moment in 1981. You had an early vintage. You had been introduced to these uh, wineries uh, through Andre. I always thought it was that they'd come and visited you at Jordan, but it must have been that you... You had introductions to Mouton and Cheval Blanc and et cetera. And so take, take us through, here it is. Uh, you've had an early harvest, 81. We finished it September, mid-September. Yeah, which was, we don't even start in uh, almost in a year, but we finished that year. And, I, and I, I'm, you know, again, being this uh, chosen winemaker for Tom Jordan to produce a wine that, would be more comparable to a Bordeaux. I need to be find out what's going on in Bordeaux and to be able to see a, a harvest. Right, uh, you'd never been able to go during harvest. I remember absolutely you not. Yeah, and so my, I I I started way back. You know when I was became the winemaker at Jordan. I we always had harvest interns that I hired, and I uh, love to be able to hire international interns. And so we've over the forty three years I've. I've had the privilege of working with almost every country, China, um, uh, some funny stories there, but, but uh, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, but also throughout Europe. And then, so this one year, 1981, was uh, Christian Berry, who you met, and he was my, he was a friend of uh, my, uh, one of the students that I got to know from the Denology program at Davis, Roger Perelson, and he's, Roger had spent a stage like you had spent uh, at Secorex in the southern mm -hmm. France, and he'd uh, met Christian. So Christian was coming, you know, fresh out of University of Bordeaux, wanting some uh, an internship, a harvest. And Roger called me up, and says you should you should hire him. So we did, and then of course he didn't have a place to stay, and so I shared this little. Basically, it was a <laughs> a studio with him, which was difficult uh, at best, but. Um, but it also gave me a chance to really talk about the cultures and because his father had a winery there in Leeborn. So I said, you know, Christian, I, I, I want to go. My French isn't all that great. I want to go to spend some time, particularly in uh, Saint-Emilion, but also in Bordeaux and the Médoc. And I have connections with Jean-Jacques Nadier, who I just, dear friend, uh, where we, uh, uh, we got all of our barrels from in the Médoc. These were these are great great wineries that I really wanted to go visit, and so the combination between those that might have come to visit the winery, those that Andre certainly knew and recommended, and uh, and then you know friends that we both knew that might, had spent some time in France. So I I talked to a Christian and I said, uh, hey, um, once you come along with me, and you know you can be my translator and. So problem was <laughs> Christian was a very virile young man and uh, very interested in the ladies. And so we spent a lot of time. Once we got to Bordeaux, we was spending dates with them, and I didn't see a whole lot of him. Uh, <laughs> but I stayed with his family, which was really fun. Anyway, and in then... In Castillon, Côte de Castillon. Yeah. Castillon-la-Bataille, as I recall. Excellent. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm going to go, I had these, all these, uh, my itinerary was all lined up to go visit these wonderful uh, sites. And um, I get this, I'm up there, nobody knows, nobody knows where I am, you know. And so I'm brushing my teeth upstairs 
And Christian's mother comes up and French says, uh, Robert, Robert, uh, Daniel Baron on the téléphone. And I said, oh, I'm not sure if I pronounced that even right, but I said, um, what? Daniel Baron, what the hell? He doesn't know where I am. And so you tell the story of the connection. Yes. Yeah, so uh, you guys had gone to visit uh, Chateau Coutet. Yes. And Chateau Coutet, uh, the regisseur there was an Irishman named Michael Conroy. Michael Conroy, yes. And Michael Conroy had seen me give my master's presentation. So uh, Michael Conroy had a photographic memory. He never forgot anything. Yeah. And he, um, so Mike Walsh gave me his number uh, of a famous Mike Walsh Vineyard Management. Yes, who planted Jordan Vineyard. Yeah. I did. What yeah. a small, small world. Yeah. And, and Michael, yeah, I told, I told uh, my friend Michael Conroy that you were coming and he says he remembers you. He said he really liked your presentation of your master's research. Wow. So I get to Paris in July of 81, and I, I call, you know, pay phones, right? I call. He happens to be home. He picks up. He says, oh, I'll, when do you start work? I said, on Monday. You know, it was like a, a Thursday. He said, okay, take the train to Bordeaux. Tell me what train you're on. I'll pick you up, and I'll bring you home, and you can stay with us for the weekend. Well, I stay with them for the weekend. On Monday morning, I call um, Monsieur Elie at the Chateau La Rivalerie in the Côte d'Oublie. I had a one-year internship in the Côte d'Oublie, which would have been pretty much a wasted year, <laughs> you know? And I thought, you know, I know Bordeaux. Well, I, I didn't know Côte d'Oublie was not a particularly high-quality area of Bordeaux. And Mitro had just been elected, and uh, Monsieur Elie says, Ah, Monsieur Baron, uh, in French, I am so sorry, uh, I cannot hire you. The laws have changed. Best of luck. Click. So I ended up staying with the Conroys for weeks um, and eventually getting some work uh, during the harvest. So it had kind of Come around, I'd finished the 81 harvest. I'd worked in seven different chateaus from Pomerol through uh, the Medoc and Moulis. And I'd come back to, well, I had nowhere else to go. I came back to Coutet. I was trying to get on to the distillation in, in Cognac. And he says, oh, a friend of yours was here. I said, really? He said, yeah, Rob Davis. I said, Rob was here? He said, yeah, but he's with this guy, Christian Verri, who I don't like. And, and he said, so I don't want to talk about it. I said, what do you mean you'd want to talk about it? Did they leave a phone number? <laughs> yes, yeah, somewhere around here there's a phone number, but, you know, I'm mad at him. So, you know, so it took, it took me a couple hours of pleading <laughs> and uh, insisting for him to find the scrap of paper 
uh, it was either on his desk or already was, in the was, garbage can. It was meant to be. And, uh, and that's when I called, and, uh, or I called the next morning. And Christian or his mother wasn't going to let me speak to you. She said, he's busy. He's brushing his teeth. <laughs> so <laughs> like I'm not real busy, but well, I'm glad, I'm glad things persevere because I, I thought, well, this is great. Because, you know, I, I had a, um, a distant respect for your work uh, working with OMO at the university. And I, in fact, I think uh, I was thinking, here's an ex-professor that's going to be working under, uh, that's going to be taking OMO's place. So uh, very high regard for your viticulture background. And so I thought, but then I thought, well, my Christian is not really um, not being quite the partner I was hoping for in this in these visits. You know, I don't mind being my own, but you know, I really needed somebody that would that could translate uh, or at least do better than my French. And my French only got only good, much better after about three weeks because then my ear got better. Right. But, but the first week I was horrible, and I thought. So I said, Dan. I'm not sure what your next week is, but I got some pretty good appointments, and I'd be love to have you join me if you can. And so uh, one of them is, you know, I've been invited to lunch uh, by Petrus and uh, Jean-Claude Barraway, not, not Christian at the time, because I'd met him at the lunch. And, and so uh, we get that old farmhouse winery that I just love, this, this great Petrus, but it's just, you know, this kind of the antique look. And... You come along, and I said, and, and to this day, it really, that's why we have Crush Lunch at Jordan, is because of, of that invitation. Right. And it was wonderful because, you know, got the reputation of Petrus, you know, as everybody knows, is great, but it's so comfortable and down home. And you got this uh, family-style lunch with all these plates of great food, but, but nothing fancy, but just good, hearty food. I think they had like the press wine or something because you can't have wine in France without. Yeah, it was a. It was what is called a gerbabod. So it was it was post harvest. It was a press lunch, mm-hmm. and the tradition is to pour the wine that was pressed that day. Ah, oh, and that would wonderful. be in magnums, and it was it was pretty brutal. Yeah, well, it was it was it was pretty amazing. So, I my position at the table was right next to. Jean-Claude, and on the other side was Christian. And you had these, uh, you know, the, 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 the press crew, the field crew, all there in their normal, uh, I say, agricultural equipment. Uh, they're kind of wear. There's certainly not the three-piece suit that Christian was wearing. And you really see that kind of diversification between those, you know, working in the cellar and the field, and then, of course, the ownership. And so I'm really feel so honored that they're having everyone there representing the winery in all the different fields uh, for me. And so I said to Christian, I said, gosh, you know, I, I feel really um, one of the best guests I've ever been. You know, I've been a guest with Andre, but this is, you put this whole lunch together just for me. And he goes, well, and this way it was so key what we're doing today. He goes, well, Rob, it's, it's, it's important for the owner to always feed the workers. And we do this every day. This is nothing exceptional. And I said, I mean, the camaraderie that is amplified with everyone being there and there's no status symbol. We're all there just having a good time getting together. I thought that was that was genius. And so throughout the lunch, um, Christian keeps asking me, you know, if I know of a vineyard with my knowledge. of Well, and he was not happy. Jean-Claude had asked uh, Maria, the Portuguese uh, chef, if there was enough for one more. 
And so Jean-Claude had made the decision to say yes when you called oh. or Christian called. And so I got the backstory later. Oh, I And Moex was not happy. Huh. He was not happy. So I was seated down at the other end of You're the way, table. You're the best part of the table, yeah. And and the other part was that uh, Monsieur Vessier, who became my mentor, the cellar master who had been hired in 1954 by wow. by Christian's dad, he had said to me, "Jeune homme, il te faut faire chabreau. So, young man, you have to drink wine out of your soup dish. That's to faire chabreau. chabreau yes. And norm, the normal rule was you fill it till the spoon is covered. Well, he filled my bowl to the brim. Oh, my God. And he filled it with the wine from the magnum that had been pressed that day. Oh, boy. That and I thought, brutal. well, I know how to respond to a challenge. So I drank this bowl of now by then warm wine because it's in the hot bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wasn't feeling any pain. You but were, <laughs> you were the, t- the tinderfoot becoming the Eagle Scout. So, you know, and, and that's the thing. And plus, I will add to the, our listeners that um, you're singing rugby songs to leading rugby songs with the crew down. Uh, Which I don't head. know any rugby songs. But well, there was some kind of there were some Australian. No, they were rugby songs. Okay, because it was and, an Australian crew. And so Christian's asking me these, you know, very in-depth questions, and I said, "Well, Christian, I tell you what, you know, I, I, you know, I'm somewhat knowledgeable about vineyards, but nothing compared to the gentleman down there singing rugby songs and." Kind of not necessarily making a fool of himself, but having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and you're using your, very much French, but using your hands and leading the whole crowd, and they were singing, and it was just so much fun. And I said, well, this is not exactly the best resume that I could offer, Dan, but this guy really knows vineyards. And so you know, weeks later, uh, um, no, months later, it was in Christmas. In December, you show up with your little beret wearing and your employee at Petrus. And then from then on, you moved on to, to Dominus. And it's just a great story, just how how this business works. Uh, yeah. But it was, and I, I mean, the, but that whole week, Dan, was so memorable because so many fun stories. And and this is, I think, what's the, the, the diversity of this business, but also you could be, we were invited at Chateau Lascombe by Patrick Leon, and who I got to be really good friends with. And, um, uh, later and Dan courses is, is we show up in the morning and I look at you and I'm going who dressed you? <laughs> he's got a nice sports jacket, nice shirt with a tie, and then he's got these pants, corduroy pants with holes in them. And I, I said, well, is that the best pants you could find? He goes, well, we're going out in the vineyard, aren't we? And I said, yes. He goes, so I'm dressed for the vineyard. But once you sit down, and it, it was so nice that. It wasn't like going out for a burrito or something. We we were really the guests of the owners and the winemakers and this uh, amazing group of people. And I just I think it's worth telling just a funny story about the the open L and the the every everybody between rich owner to field worker always carried this wonderful pocket knife that had really good steel, but it was you know it was collapsible and uh, everybody carried it in the pocket. And so tell the story about. That wonderful lunch, and when we ran into the cheese course. Well, so so I, actually, I'll expand on that a little. So there are two schools. There, there were the Lagiols and the Opinels. Yes. So some people liked Lagiols, and some people like Opinels. But generally, everyone had 
a knife in their pocket. And so we're at this lunch, and I mean, it was very formal. Chandeliers. Chandeliers. Yeah. The, White the, silver. The, the plates had Chateau Lascombe and on it, and the woman serving us was in livery with with teal piping, as I recall. Wow, good memory. Very formal. And, you know, so it's very formal service. Patrick's at the head of the table, and we're having this conversation. And it was very animated. I, I don't remember what vintage is, but they were good wines. Yes. And we get to the point where she has removed all the plates, all the silverware. She's brought out the cheese. She's brought out the bread. And the phone rings. And it's apparently for her. And she starts having a conversation on the phone. Well, we're all sitting there. We've got the rest of our beautiful red wine. We've got the cheese. We've got the bread. And conversation kind of comes to a standstill. And everyone's sitting there kind of yearning towards this <laughs> cheese and bread. And I figured, well, it's a logical thing. I had an opinel in my back pocket. So I reach in my back pocket. And I pull my opinel, and I slice myself some cheese, and I pass the plate along with the knife on it. Now, what was hilarious about this is the French expect Americans to be really crass. That's what they expect of us. Uh -huh. But they don't expect us to be crass as a French peasant would be crass. Because the movement, even the movement of reaching into the back pocket was so French uh, because I'd been living with the peasants for six months, that it, it was, it, there was this dead silence, and then everyone at the table just exploded in laughter. Yeah. It was, it was and then great. brought out their own knives. And brought out their own Everybody knives. Everybody had their own, you know, and, whatever. And, was, and yeah. Patrick, every time I would see Patrick, he would remind me of that moment. Oh my God! It was, it was he, great. he had his Cuban cigars, you know. I and we yeah. lost, we lost him. Yeah, yeah. I just so because he's still got his Facebook, but I, um, I actually saw him very recently in New York, and probably months before he passed away. But mm. again, one of those brilliant, brilliant minds. Oh my and, goodness! And. Um, you know, and and, and the going from Lascombe to, to and and to if you're an enologist and trying to find uh, the truth behind some of the folklore, there's a lot of folklore in this business. Yes, but and one of the wonderful things of working Andre is that he was able to um, separate the two mm. most of the time. So when we were the things we just sometimes take for granted of, I'm, I'm not sure if my crew now understands why we make up egg whites with salt. I yeah. try to tell them, but, but Andre said, now don't forget the salt. And I said, Oh, okay. And so being me being this, you know, doing the, have to figure out exactly how much salt to get a certain isotonic solution for the egg whites, you know, so they emulsify. And I, I asked Andre, you know, Andre never told me why I was using the salt. He just, he's the, you know, he's, he's the master. So, but then <clears throat> when I was with you in Bordeaux, I thought, I'm going to really find out what, what the true meaning of this salt is. And so that's what brings up Patrick Long, because I would talk to, we were at Palmer. And they go, oh, you have to use a wire whisk. 
you know, no, you cannot use a blender. No, 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 the blender ruins the proteins and you and the finding won't be as as. Yeah, clear, you clear, denature right? the proteins before yeah. they hit the wine. Yeah. yeah, it has to be, a, and it has to be a copper bowl. Very, very traditional. I don't know about the copper bowl. Well, yeah, but, 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 it's, but it's just really cool. So I go, oh, okay. And but course, there is some chemistry. I mean, the chefs talk about copper bowls for beating egg whites. So well, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, so I uh, so I said okay, so Palmer, so no salt, uh, don't use the salt, just just whip it regular. So then um, I went to Mouton and I asked uh, there, and he says, well, yeah, we use salt and we find it. Otherwise, we just you know it's not a big thing. And I said, well, you know, I'm very precise. So Patrick, I said, Patrick, I said, um, what do you recommend? He goes. You have to use the salt. And I said, but why? And he goes, because you have two proteins in the egg white. You have fibrin and you have albumin. The albumin is water-soluble, but the fibrin, you have to use salt to get a brine solution to have it soluble. Bingo. And that's the kind of mind he had. And when he went from there to Mouton, and we're talking about how you treat the fruit and and the stemming process and and how we still, to this day now, with uh, grinding up the stems is not not very good and this is this i think is all the things that they'll call it subtleties but we as winemakers are always looking for this holy grail answer that's going to be oh why can't we why can't we make great pinot noir like in the great years in, in burgundy and i remember andre coming up with all these well we need more skin contact so they would drain it and then uh and use that for the uh, beaujolais rosaires and then crush back on top, it increased the skin, the juice ratio, and it right. still wasn't right. Uh, truth is, it, great wines are born in the vineyard, and so you want great Pinot Noir, it's got to come in great. So I, um, we're so good at about our machinery, and so, oh, they add stems, the, Burgund, the, the Burgundy winemakers add stems to their Pinot Noir to get the tannin, of course. It makes so much sense. So, of course, what do we do? If we want to add stems, we're going to, Increase the surface area of the stems even more by grinding it up. So they had machines you could do this, and you would taste the, the, the must and go, my God, this is so astringent, so awkward. So I, I, I was talking to um, uh, the winemaker owner at the time, uh, uh, winery in Volnay, uh, Pustor, and just a really great researching mind. And he says, what? We only add stems to the really bad years. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, well, the type of tannins you have in stems are short-chain, very aggressive tannins, and Pinot Noir lacking the tannins, but you have a really poor year where you don't get good maturity, and mold particularly, and the mold being a protein, so you'll go ahead and add these. You're basically finding out the mold. So instead of taking the, the, the valuable tannins of the Pinot Noir they're already lacking in pigments to begin with by nature you don't want to lose any more so we'll throw you away use the stem you sacrifice the stem tannins yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And I said and this is the kind of thing that I think are so uh, important in traveling and kind of yeah exactly finding it, you know, one of my favorite stories was uh, we had a group from uh, from Burgundy come and this was in the 80s when everyone <laughs> became obsessed with lees stirring you know, what, you know, why use if Why not use a drill? You know, why not really mix them? And we're making these blousy uh, Chardonnays that wouldn't wouldn't last two years. Um, and I asked this group in French, you know, I said, do you guys stir the lees? And they said, yeah, yeah, of course. And I said, 
How often? They said once a week. And that's where it came from, you know. Mm. Combien de fois vous remoyez les, les... You know, someone in high school French asks them and they say, yeah, once a week. Uh-huh. I said, through the whole life of the wine and barrel? He said, what, are you crazy? Yeah. No, through the ML. And until <laughs> we had SO2. And he said, and to tell you the truth, the last couple of weeks you walk by and hit the side of the barrel with the stick. <laughs> you know, and, and again, that's you, it's why traveling is so important. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and how you ask the question, you know, yes. because is your, is your daughter beautiful? Of course she is, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what's her personality like? Oh, gosh, she's stubborn as could be, whatever. You don't get that unless you ask the right question. So right. Um, when I first started, one of my first questions was, well, do you, do you shaptalize? No, 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 no. We don't shaptalize. You know, that's because that shaptalization, why do you have to shaptalize to make up or something nature can't give you naturally? But if you ask the stand, says, so when do you shaptalize? <laughs> oh, very important. Now, if you add a little bit, of t- don't add it all at once. <laughs> yeah, And then you get the real understanding of, you know, you want to keep the peak of the temperature, the fermentation to try to get the extraction. Mm. So you become better at understanding of, you know, how things work by how you ask the questions. And so that, that's why every year I wanted to go back, and uh, my trip to Italy was just, again, everywhere I went, even New Zealand, and understanding we have no labor. How do you make great wines without labor? And so they explained to you, okay. Well, they hire 50 interns. Yeah, <laughs> I think they do. Work them like slaves. As they do, yeah. And they get to wear shorts when they do it, too. But, yeah, I mean, it's uh, South Africa, um, you know, where they were just learning about water availability to a vine and when it's important to have and when not instead of following oh drip irrigation let's water the hell out of everything well that's also it's just like sometimes you want to stir sometimes you want to mix it's just it's so important understanding the process of it and that's where i think in traveling and and everywhere i went i mean it's uh i was in in um, connecticut and they were explaining why to do certain things in the vineyard that i'd never even heard of i said well you don't get hurricanes, <laughs> I said, because they bring the salt in with the, the hurricane, and they have to deal with that, and mm. why their vineyards don't last that long. But they have such a passion for making wine. I said, well, Rob, you don't get hurricanes. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and you really appreciate how how gifted we are in some of the wonderful weather we get. I mean, God, uh, last year, talking to our friend uh, Antoine Melisenia from Erlenov, and he says, Rob, it was it got to be... For, for during bloom time, um, not during set, but during bloom time, it got to be like 110 degrees, 100, 114 degrees for like five days or something. And champagne. Wow. So. Uh, yeah, that was a crazy heat wave. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And this is, this is, I think, where the more you learn, you always say you learn more from the difficult years, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. But I want to finish with a, with a funny story that kind of takes all of this full circle. Um, One, one year uh, Ray Duncan came, came to me and and he he didn't come to me, but I, I heard, I was talking with Ray and he said, you know, we're going to start doing harvest lunches. I said, really? Well, that's, you know, it's about time. He said, yeah, you know, we're going to have a chef and I don't know if we're going to do it every day, but we're going to at least do once a week. We're going to have harvest lunch. I said, why this sudden idea? He said, well, you know, 
Tom Jordan invited me to a lunch, and and uh, and it was amazing. They had this lunch, and they told me that it's because um, that you know their winemaker learned this uh, in France, and that he went to a harvest lunch at Petrus. Uh. And I said, "Yeah, I was there. <laughs> you could have just asked me." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so our, our, isn't isn't life funny? I mean that it, it that this was literally what 35, 40 years after that lunch, forty years ago, nineteen eighty, yeah, and um, and that was you know Ray Duncan was telling me about the <laughs> lunch at Petrus that he'd heard about from Tom, who'd heard about it from you, who you know that just life is funny. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately Ray. Always took the marketing in with Tom and because they were going to drill wells together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't know anything, Rob, because Silver Oak just finished their harvest and you just haven't done yet. And I go, oh, I just talked to Dan. <laughs> 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 but that was my competition to make sure that, you know, whatever Ray said, I had an answer for. There you uh, go. They were very, very good friends. But, you know, Dan, it's, it's just, this also, you know, if I was to finish up, is just our friendship over all these years, 40 years, and it's just, uh, I've been to your son's bar mitzvah, and um, uh, just the, the, the value that the relationships, probably more than anything else, is the most important in this business. Yep. I mean, you give me a brilliant mind, you could have all the money in the world, you could have the best vineyard in the world, but it's the relationships that I think are really key to our success. Yep, yep, Absolutely. And the other thing I think that's that's key, um, and you're a great example, is, you know, we're all given opportunities. It's what you do with the opportunities yep. that that uh, life life uh, sends your way. Yes. And you you really capitalized on on the opportunity. It would have been nice if you'd gotten a PhD, but you know, would have made I, your mother happy. But I think. Uh, I got the one from Andre. Andre, Andre calling you a doctor, that's that's probably worth <laughs> it. Well, Rob, thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. And uh, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll catch up more. Absolutely. Thanks, okay. Dan. Thanks. That was fun. Indeed it was. I hope you enjoyed episode one of The Winemaker's Journey. This is your host, Daniel Barron. Thank you for tuning in and keep listening for further interviews with interesting winemakers and viticulturists. Thank you very much. There is further information on show notes. And if you have comments or questions, please email them to me at daniel at complantwine.com. C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T wine.com. Thank you very much.